I went to Harlem a few weeks ago to see one of the Democratic candidates running to be mayor of New York. His name is Eric Adams. Hi, I am uh, Eric Adams, the Brooklyn president and a candidate. Adams has consistently polled at or around the top of the heap of people running in the Democratic primary. And the Democratic primary is widely considered to be what will determine who wins the mayor's office this fall. We have the long march towards equity, justice, and just a right of people. How do we end the historical inequalities in this city? And Adams is trim and usually smiling. He squares his shoulders like a cop. He used to be one. He was an officer in the NYPD for over 20 years, and he has centered that experience during his campaign. And so I understand proper policing, but I also understand proper safety. And that is what I'm going to lift up in this city. We Standing with the police is not an obvious or surefire way to win a Democratic primary right now. Not after the year we've had. Not after the decade New York has had. The debate over police brutality has been going on a long time in this city. When I saw Adams, he was getting peppered with questions about his views on stop and frisk this notorious police tactic of stopping and searching people, predominantly black and brown men, with scant reason. So, 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 so Jeff, because it's important. Because if someone is in your backyard, four in the morning, hiding themselves, you call the police. The police the officer has the right to stop and question that person. That is how you use properly stop and frisk. I was watching this exchange. Reporters around Adams were not satisfied. And with each follow-up question, Adams would nod and launch into a very qualified defense of stop and frisk, the theory of it. See, when people think stop, question, and frisk, they think that all of it goes together. No. The first action you take is stop. The second action you take is to question. The person may have a legitimate reason. This is my house. This is my apartment. Now you leave as an officer. You don't frisk that person. You don't search that person. So if you, if you have a police department where you say you can't stop and question, that is not a responsible form of policing. But what we abused, we took the basic... It is a little puzzling that stop and frisk is a persistent issue in this race. Stop and frisks are not gone in New York, but they're much diminished. The last time they loomed large in the news was in 2013. That's when a federal judge said the city was using stop and frisks unconstitutionally. That same year, Bill de Blasio won the New York mayoral race in a landslide. And he did it by promising to end stop and frisk. One of his most memorable ads featured his son Dante, who's black. There are hundreds of thousands of New Yorkers who've never experienced stop and frisk. Shirley and I have talked to Dante many times about the fact that someday he will be stopped. Parents all over the city are having that conversation with their kids. Bill de Blasio, the only candidate to end a stop and frisk era that targets minorities. The only I mean, it wasn't just an issue in the 2013 mayoral race. It was the issue. Eric Latch is a staff writer at The New Yorker. He's been covering the mayoral race and the debates it's kicking up. 
No issue has galvanized public opinion against police abuse in New York City the way stop and frisk did. I mean, it was just this, it crystallized a lot of the debates and just provided a kind of clear example of something that people could point to and say, look, this, the police department, this is out of control. I mean, you know, we, this, this is intolerable. But violent crime is up in New York. It's up in large cities across the country. The people who study this kind of thing are finding it hard to explain why. And public safety is on people's minds as they clue into the mayoral election here. So while it struck me as weird that any mayoral candidate would want to talk about stop and frisk, let alone get bogged down in explaining why it's actually kind of complicated, Eric Latch says that message is working for candidate Eric Adams. He has a kind of like, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater kind of argument in defense of stop and frisk, where he treats it as a kind of, you know, police should be allowed to preserve stop and frisk as a tool in the toolbox, used when necessary in an appropriate way. I do think that like this crime debate in in New York City, um, it's important to think about it. And it's important as a kind of testing ground for arguments. And it's important as a testing ground for real solutions, like after somebody gets elected. Yeah, I mean, you know, some people make the argument and I, I, you know, I think it's an interesting one that like arguments about safety in New York City in the 70s turned into arguments about public safety and crime on much bigger scales in the 80s and 90s. Stuff that starts at the city level, you know, uh, ends up kind of filtering up. Today on the show, when we look at New York's mayoral race right now, are we seeing a pendulum swinging back away from the past year of protests over abusive policing and away from criminal justice reform? I'm Mary Wilson, filling in today for Mary Harris. This is What Next. Keep listening. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. So Eric Adams's campaign message, um, what's very interesting to me about it is that it fits beautifully with his personal story, as he's put it, as he's put a story forward. Can you give us the highlights of his trajectory in New York City law enforcement and politics as a kid? I mean, one of the most compelling starter points of his story is that as a kid, he was a victim of police brutality, and then he went on to become a cop himself. Eric Adams is like an outer borough son of New York who, like, at age 15, I think you know, is beaten in the basement of police precinct house. And, you know, in, and, and, and a few years later, um, at the urging of a mentor, uh, he joins the police in order to sort of advocate for change from within. And, I, or, and it's even less lofty than that, because he's like, a, you know, he's in his 20s. And he's sort of, I think there's also this idea that like, um, you know, we need to diversify the police force so it better represents the communities that are being policed, you know, and Eric Adams is part of that wave of officers. But he also gets involved in speaking out against police abuse from 
inside the department. Another interesting aspect with Adams is that the touch tones of police abuse and brutality and violence for him are a previous generation's touch tones. So Amadou Diallo and uh, Abner Louima, uh, which were, which were you know, men who, in Diallo's case, was killed, in, in Louima's case, was brutally beaten uh, and sexually assaulted by officers in the 1990s. So it's not George Floyd... Uh, era names. He's calling back to sort of an earlier era of names that were used to push for reforms and change within the police department. Adams was organized. He started a group within the NYPD to bolster his calls for reform. It gave him a platform from which to talk about police brutality. He developed a reputation as an activist cop. If you watch local news in New York City in the 1990s, I mean, he was doing press conferences, he was on TV, he was somebody who was in the news and involved in sort of a, a presence. Um, you know, all along, I mean, he's he's sort of eyeing a political career. I mean, I, I think sort of, you know, f- f- from from very early, uh, he, he's kind of like, I want to be mayor. And uh, I think this was in a, in a Times piece um, a few weeks ago, a profile of him, but that, you know, he went to... Um, he went to a guy named Bill Lynch, I believe his name was, who's a sort of famous political operative and kind of was like, Bill, how do I become mayor? And it was like, you know, rise to the ranks in the police department. Then, you know, it was like sort of a series of steps that was like then win elected office, then become a borough president. And, you know, so he Adams, he sort of checked everything else off on the list. He sort of retired as a captain from the police department. Then he was elected to the state Senate Um representing uh, a, a district in Brooklyn. And then he was elected Brooklyn Borough President, which is kind of a funny kind of local. It's sort of like the ceremonial kind of position at this point. It's kind of a it's still sort of a vestige of when like New York City was like five cities, like when the, all the boroughs weren't actually sort of one political entity, but rather kind of a, a cluster of them. And it's sort of at this point, like the borough presidents are kind of boosters for the city and have a little bit of a hand in sort of some of the municipal decisions. But it's kind of ceremonial, like you say. And but he's you know, but but he's checking these boxes on a list that was given to him of how you become mayor. And then, you know, and then this year he he, he sort of is 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 trying to fulfill that that goal. Did he launch his campaign uh, as the public safety candidate or is he making use of concerns about rising crime? The answer is no. When he launched his campaign, you know, we were coming out of like the George Floyd protests, you know, so it would have been crazy to like launch the campaign as the public safety uh, uh, candidate. And so he he kind of took a couple of different tacks along the way trying mm-hmm. to trying to position himself. I mean, he's also, among other things, he's a strict vegan. Um, he, was, he was diagnosed with uh, diabetes a number of years ago, and he was you know, he was he re- he was half blind and and sort of overweight and had a lot of health problems. And he, after getting the diagnosis, um, started cooking all his own food and sort of subscribing to a strict vegan diet. Adams is also big into meditation, um, big into mindfulness in general. He talks about that a lot in terms of even incorporating it into like policies. All of that stuff, I think, at the beginning, he was sort of flirting with being the public health candidate. You know, in a pandemic. You know, it was kind of like. We're going to run a campaign on sort of public health and healthiness. And I think, you know, school lunch and 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 sort of nutrition for kids was going to be a com- big component of that, that kind of thing. And as the pandemic sort of receded in New York and the news became came to be more dominated by the spike in shootings in the city and uh, reports of crime on the subway and hate crimes against people of Asian descent in the city, Adams 
really kind of committed to to sort of you know leaned into his record um and and said okay no this is going to be a public safety election which is not unusual in new york city i mean lots of mayoral elections historically have turned on issues of crime and public safety and the balance of um policing and 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 civil rights and and and, and things like that uh but but adams really kind of seized on it and the moment i think for me that you know if adams goes on to win um that i think will be sort of a key moment is that there was a there's a shooting in Times Square in April, I believe, where um, two brothers who were CD vendors in Times Square got into an argument. And one brother pulled out a gun and started firing at his brother, missed his brother, but hit three passersby. It was a, there was a little girl in a stroller and then, and then two, two women who were just visiting city of Times Square, you know, tourist, tourist central hub, uh, you know, of, of, of New York City, if not tourist central hub of the universe. Um, and Adams, you know, within hours of the shooting, held a press conference in Times Square to talk about it and to talk about the spike in shootings and what was going on. I don't know why all the other candidates in this race are attempting to ignore that we are dealing with a gun violence crisis in the city. And we must be honest about it and we must be clear on stopping it. Andrew Yang held a press conference there, I think the next day, seeing sort of an opportunity to, to talk about public safety. And then Adams just turned right back around and held a second press conference in Times Square. Well, I have not heard the other candidates lean into this imminent threat that we're having in the city. They're I mean, not- he, he was like, if you want to make this campaign about public safety, I am all in. You know, I think he I think he saw it clearly from from, like when when this stuff started to bubble up in the news, that if this became a campaign about crime, uh, which which it looks like it very much is going to be that Eric Adams is going to be very well positioned in, in that kind of race. And from what I've read and seen, Adams's pitch is that New York can have policing that is proactive and also ethical that you don't have to. I think the way he puts it on the. Uh, at at campaign events, I think the way he puts it is you don't have to choose between public safety and justice. You've talked to him and you've also taken a close look at some of his opponents in the Democratic primary. And I'm curious if his policies are different from those of his opponents or if he's standing apart mostly because that's the message he's homed in on and that that's what he chooses to emphasize. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple things. I mean, he's definitely rejected all arguments about cutting police budgets. You know, so so you know, it's like there's there's really, I mean, there's really one candidate left in the in the very large Democratic primary field who still embraces the the language of the defund the police movement. But other can, other candidates, Maya Wiley, uh, uh, Scott Stringer, uh, have called for cuts to the police budget. Eric Adams is not, you know, he's not here for that. I mean, on the nitty gritty of like police reform. Um, Adams has various proposals uh, that I think are interesting and serious and sort of, you know, uh, w- you know, w- worthy of debate and not at odds with some goals of what, uh, you know, policing reformers want. Uh, he certainly wants to make that argument. You know, I mean, he, he, he kind of, if you talk to him, he's very much like, you know, I'm in a dialogue and debate with reformers, but I'm not against reform, you know, I think is, is kind of his, his sort of stance. Um, but, uh, you know, but the vision of policing that Eric Adams has is 
a cop on a smiling cop on every corner, you know, and and at the top step of every subway station saying hello to every passerby and how's it going and have a good day and be safe and 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 people smiling back and saying thanks so much officer see you later, you know, it's like this kind of like blanketing the city with happy proactive cops which, you know, to me, you know, it's been in some ways more difficult to imagine than the police abolitionists goal of of just doing away with policing entirely i mean this sort of idea of like you know i mean adams when i when i interviewed him talked about like yeah i want people like taking you know bringing their their corner cop like a birthday card like on his birthday and it's just like that you know it's like that he he thinks it's you know policing is a is a good job he thinks policing provides middle class jobs you know tens of thousands of middle class jobs i mean that's the other aspect of this that he you know he he you know i think he thinks Look, the department's 60,000 people. There's like 35,000 uniformed police officers. And he's like, these are all middle-class jobs, you know? And then, and, and increasingly, they're middle-class jobs for black and brown New Yorkers. You know, it's not just a, a, a totally white police department anymore. So there's that aspect of it, you know, but then there's the grand vision, which is like, yeah, the cop as the necessary component to the corner in all kinds of ways, to the neighborhood in all kinds of ways. After the break, what Eric Adams' view of public safety still has to answer for. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. The vision Eric Adams has for policing in New York is colored by two experiences. There's his role as an activist within the NYPD. And then there's his role as an operative. Adams was a computer programmer with the police at the very moment the department was starting to use data to drive its approach. The shorthand for this is CompStat. It spread across the country, but CompStat was pioneered by the NYPD. It was the application of data to policing, I think, is the simplest way to sort of, but it involved like the department would have, there was these famous meetings. If you watch The Wire, it's like The Wire sort of goes into some of this stuff too. It's like they have these meetings where like all of the um, police officials, the lower down officials have to like present their stats to the higher ups and kind of, it's like, you know, and they get grilled, you know, what are you doing about, okay, you know, there's like, there's, there's been a, there's been a spate of robberies on this street. What are you doing about that? You know, like there's been, you've got three murders in this district in the last month. Like what's happening here? You know, it's like, the, and it's sort of like, it's kind of using the numbers to make arguments about the deployment 
of resources. Adams has a front row seat to this work, which ends up getting credit. I mean, this is debated, but it, it ends up getting you know credited with having a hand in you know the the kind of crime miracle in New York City. You know that where the city goes from thousands of murders a year and, and 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 high crime rates to becoming the safest big city in 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 the country in in a relatively short order, and. Adams is sort of like part of his pitches. Like I was there, I was in the room. This was amazing. You know, it's like, it's like when, when this happened, I mean, nobody thought that this was going to work and then it, and then it did. I mean, it, and, and sort of there's debates about how it worked and, and sort of how much credit policing should get. But he's, he's like, this is almost like a lived experience argument that Adams makes. This is like, I just saw it up close. Eric Latch says the problem with CompStat is that numbers don't tell the whole picture. By basically going numbers first, you're like creating a sort of um, a context for police to basically like the numbers are the be all and end all. So, you know, so you just need to raise the numbers. You need to look like you're doing something and stop and frisk became an easy way to look like you're doing something because you can just stop anybody on the street, you know, for any reason. And so like you could quickly pile up like, well, what are we doing? Well, look at all these stop and frisk stops. And so, you know, one of the things that Adams needs to answer for, and this is, you know, when I, when we talked, I sort of pressed him on this, is, is, is how do you stop CompStat, numbers-driven policing, from turning into stop-and-frisk abuse, which is like numbers-driven policing run rampant? You know, how do you, like, arrest that process somewhere along the way? And his argument, and, you know, it's like, I think, leave it to voters to sort of see whether they're persuaded by this, is that transparency is key and that what you need to do and that what Rudy Giuliani, when he was mayor of New York City, when CompStat was sort of instituted and stop and frisk stop started to rise, is that Rudy Giuliani was not interested in, this is what Adam says, not interested in in sort of analyzing and auditing the numbers in real time and seeing if like the the numbers were legit. Like, like they, were they helpful stops? Were they good stops? Or were they abusive stops? Were they racial profiling stops? Adams' opponents in the Democratic primary take issue with his views on policing. The strongest candidate and the most natural foil to Adams is Maya Wiley. She's a civil rights activist, and for a few years, she was counsel to current New York Mayor Bill de Blasio. At a debate last month, Wiley was quick to bring up Adams and past comments he made about stop and frisk. There was nothing okay about it. And it certainly was nothing more than lazy policing, certainly kept people's constitutional rights violated. How can New Yorkers trust you to protect us and to keep us safe from police misconduct? Yeah, so Wiley, she's kind of got a tricky position um, where, you know, she's a defender of the the aims and kind of hopes of the defund the police movement without actually subscribing to the defund the police movement. She wants to cut the police budget, but she doesn't, you know, she doesn't use the term. She, I think she thinks the term is a little bit of a distraction at best. And the race has tried to, you know, was kind of for a while jostling with a couple of other um, more lefty progressive candidates. And I think, you know, at this point with a, with a, a couple of days to go before the start of early voting has, um, I think, made a persuasive claim to being the kind of last one standing. The other sort of candidates have had issues in their campaigns or about their past that have come up. Maya Wiley has been racking up progressive endorsements for months. But two biggies came down in the past few days, one from Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez 
and another from Senator Elizabeth Warren. Eric Latch says those endorsements answer a question that's been looming over this race. Everyone's been asking in this race for months, is the left going to coalesce? Is the left going to coalesce? And sort of when AOC came out this past weekend and said, I'm backing my Wiley, it was finally like, okay, maybe it is going to coalesce. Like maybe there will be a, a kind of just left candidate. Um, and, you know, with Adams, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, Wiley has wanted to fight with Adams in part because Adams has been the front runner. And I think candidates in large races always want to fight with the front runner because if you're fighting with the front runner, then it's, there's a good case to be made that you're like, you're, you know, you're front runner adjacent. Um, and so then that's good. Um, you know, and then, and then on policing, I think like she has tried to find a kind of counter argument to what Adams is talking about in terms of, you know, public safety and kind of what the response to this spike in shooting should be and sort of how, you know, how we should treat and how we should think about policing in this city. And, and, um, you know, Wiley has tried, I think, to make Adams a figure of like, well, well, let's not go back, you know, let's not go back to old tactics that, you know, have failed us. Uh, let's like, you know, Wiley's case is much more a kind of like, let's move forward and, and figure out what's next, I think is, is, is sort of her, her, her argument. Are there other candidates in the Democratic primary that you find interesting, especially in relation to Adams and how they challenge Adams? A lot of the coverage of this race, but even even like, you know, even when you talk to political operatives or, or, or the campaigns, you know, it was like the question for months was, will the left come together? Will the left come together? How strong is the left? And now, actually, at the very end, um, the left may well come together. And it's actually the center that's kind of fractured. So, you know, you've got Adams, you know, in the polls kind of battling with Andrew Yang, who who was the front runner, uh, you know, for much of the winter and has started to fade a little bit at the end here, but is still sort of pulling, you know, I mean, it's funny. It's like we talk about, you know, it's like it's hard to talk about these things without polling because, like, what do you point to? You know, what do you point to for evidence of how people are doing without it? But, you know, and then the other kind of weird thing is that, like, strong in the polls in this race has meant 20% of likely Democratic primary voters, which is going to be, like, you know, 10% of the city, if that. You know, so you're talking about 20% of 10% of the city being like, they're doing great, this is the next mayor. But like, <laughs> so, so you know, so like with the caveat that we're talking about relatively small groups of people, like Yang seems to have his supporters. And then Catherine Garcia, who's a longtime city um, uh, agency official. Uh, she ran the Department of Sanitation under de Blasio. She was a senior official in the Bloomberg administration before that. She got the New York Times' endorsement a couple of weeks ago. Um, the Times sort of defended her as a competent but boring, but like, you know, in a field of nobody making a great case for a, a kind of ideological case to be the next mayor, a kind of defensive of experience candidate. Somebody who knows the city, knows the city government, knows how it runs and has some ideas about climate resilience and and, uh, and 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 sort of infrastructure that like would be helpful. That was basically the Times' sort of argument in endorsing her. And so, you know, the situation though, like here we are like with days to go and it's the left has stopped sort of having an argument about who they're going to support. And it's actually now the more um, center, the, the, the less progressive voters who suddenly have a number of options in front of them and the more moderate candidates in the race splitting votes. Eric Latch, thank you so much. Mary, thanks so much for having me. Eric Latch is a staff writer at The New Yorker. 
That's the show. Special thanks to Bruce Jory, who spoke to us at length about this mayoral election. For further reading, if you live in New York and you want to know more about the mayoral candidates, including people we didn't even mention in this show, check out thecity.nyc. They have a cool questionnaire that will show you who aligns most closely with your views. If you don't live in New York but are interested in it and want trenchant political analysis that takes progressives seriously, look up Ross Barkin and his Substack newsletter. What Next is produced by Carmel Del Shad, Danielle Hewitt, Elena Schwartz, Davis Land, and me, Mary Wilson. Allison Benedict is Slate's executive editor. Alicia Montgomery is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Mary Harris will be back tomorrow. Thank goodness. And thank you for listening. 